0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. You know, congratulations first and foremost to Ajit, uh, Margaret, and Rusty, and Pascal, because I know your passion for uh, for this, really, this Carta meeting has been spectacular and always has impressed me every time I've come to visit. So... Since I've been a graduate student, I've been interested in the genetic differences that make humans unique. And if you're interested in this question, you have to be interested in essentially what I think is the, one of the most remarkable things, which is the expansion of the frontal cortex. So shown here are two radiograms comparing essentially human and chimp. And what's remarkable, and I'm known an anatomical expert, but what is remarkable to me at least is that this expansion appears to have occurred over a relatively short period of evolutionary time. It's thought that most of the expansion from a few 400 cubic centimeter brain to one of 1,300 cubic centimeters happened over a couple million years. And then while there's still some debate on this, this is generally associated with an increase in the overall neuronal count, perhaps more impressively an increase in number of synaptic connections in human lineage, and actually an increase in specialization, plasticity, and a delay in maturation, which seems to be what often some people refer to neoteny in the human branch. Along with all of this has been increased metabolic demands. So the brain actually, of humans, sucks up about 40% of our caloric intake. And the question I've always wondered is how did that machine called the human brain really evolve, and how did it evolve so quickly? As a geneticist, we've always had a problem. And the problem is, is that humans and chimps, at least at the single base pair level, are very, very similar to one another. So in the old days, when people looked at chromosomes, they looked at the chromosomes of chimps and humans, and they found that there were relatively few large-scale genetic differences that would distinguish them. In fact, there were 10 that were identified back in the 1980s. And most of those events actually happened on the chimp lineage compared to the human. When we had the ability to sequence genomes for the first time, and we sequenced that of the chimp, one of the first genomes after humans and mouse, we found that we were almost 99% identical. So the current number is about 98.7% identical at the single base pair level. This means that the proteins that are found in our cells are more than 99% identical, with estimates of close to 30% being identical between a chimp and a human. And to make matters a little bit more worse, when people start to carefully analyze most mutational processes, you've heard people refer to this already as the slowdown, Chimps and humans are retarded with respect to mutational process. Our processes have slowed in general compared to almost every other primate. So for species that are so, appear to us at least, being so radically different, the question is how did that happen? So geneticists have come up with different approaches to explain this. Some have argued that, well, maybe it's just a few key transcription factors. So regulators, master regulator genes that could affect a lot of cascading differences. Maybe that's the key. And you can think of FOXP2. Some of you have heard of this gene. This is the gene that Svante Pablo has characterized with respect to language development. as one of those master regulators where changes for some reason happen specifically on the human lineage. Other people have argued that, well, maybe it's many different genes, but it's how they're regulated themselves. So instead of the proteins, it's when and where these genes are expressed. This is kind of this regulatory hypothesis put forward by King and Wilson in the 1970s. Maynard Olson, when he was an active member of CARTA, talked a lot about the less is more hypothesis. He referred to humans as the hastily made-over ape, and that the way we emerged was by losing genes, instead of actually gaining genes. And so there's evidence for this. So genes important in terms of myosin, and particularly in the muscles of the jaw, we've lost genes that are important in terms of their function. Some work from Majid on terms of characterizing genes important in terms of sialic biology, sialic acid biology, have been lost specifically in our branch. I have been interested in a, in a fourth, really, model. And that is, I referred to it one time with Maynard, as more is better. So if his is less is more, mine is more is better. And it's the idea of duplicated genes. So genes that have actually, are different between humans and chimps that we haven't recognized. That have emerged since we diverged as a species from the other apes. So there's evidence for this. And I'm not going to describe how this was generated. This took several students' lives, uh, at least when they were in my, <laughs> in my lab. We, we, each line here represents essentially a different human or non-human ape. So there's 100 or technically 96 different genomes that you're looking at. And what I'm showing you here in color are all the copy number variable regions that exist between humans. We are technically the top 10 lines, which you can't see, and then all the other apes. And I show you this, and so the copy number is indicated by that color scheme at the bottom. So whenever you see red, that means that that piece of DNA exists ten times in one species as opposed to, let's say, others. Black means it's single copy. So the really important thing is that when you look at this map and you actually just do simple arithmetic and ask how much of our genome is different between humans and apes as a result of copy number differences in duplicated sequences, it's about three times the number that you see for single base pair changes. So big changes that involve the gain and loss of genes, but particularly the gain of extra genes, is a very prominent or prevalent mechanism for creating genetic variation, not just between the apes and us, but also among us as a species. So we can do it, when you do the math, it's about three times the amount of genetic bases that are affected by this process. It affects about 745 genes, and most of these regions are not sequenced and assembled when we generate draft genomes of any species. This isn't specific to humans or apes. If we project this onto a generally accepted phylogeny of humans and apes, where the thickness here represents the amount of duplicated material that has been added at different time points during evolution, something really striking emerges, is in this period of time before chimps, humans, humans, and gorillas separated the African apes. There was a huge excess of duplication in the ancestral lineage. So for every base that was actually changed as a result of single base pair substitution, there were 2.6 bases that were added as a result of duplication. So remember I told you all mutational processes slowed moving toward the apes? Not this one. This one actually picked up. We don't know why but we know that there's a huge amount of that variation that you see as the result of this duplication activity. So, is there any evidence that the genes that make us human, at least in terms of the expansion of the brain, have anything to do with duplications? There have been, in the last uh, six years, papers that have come out pretty much from every corner that have suggested that these genes, in particular, are contributing to the evolution of a large brain. So the first is a gene called sirgap 2C. And just to tell you what that gene does, that gene is expressed early in development and it's important for producing dendrites on the surface on, on your neurons. So dendrites go to form spines, spines go to form synapses, and the we- reason you can listen to me right here is because of those connections that are being fired as a result of those synapses. This gene has duplicated specifically in humans since divergence, starting about 3.2 million years ago. And the duplicate actually interferes with the function of the ancestor such that it takes longer for dendrites to actually form, such that when dendrites form, they are in fact more of them, resulting in an increase in the number of synaptic connections. So this is work from largely Frank Pillow's group. So this would explain increased connectivity as a result of a duplicate gene that interferes with function of the ancestor. This is a gene called RGAP11B, it's a duplicate gene. It's specifically in the human lineage. It diverged right after humans and chimps separated about 5.2 or 3 million years ago. It's expressed specifically in cells in the developing brain, which are progenitors for the production of your neurons. And it's been shown by beautiful work, largely by Veland Hutner, that the expression of this gene, if you put it in other organisms, will actually increase the number of cell divisions of these progenitor cells such that when neurons are produced, there are more of them because you've actually increased the number of neuronal progenitor cells as a result of the expression of this gene. So this would be a gene that's responsible for increasing the number of neurons in the frontal cortex. And actually in mouse experiments, they can show that the mice brains begin to gyrify when you introduce this gene into the mouse. This last example is one we worked with David Hausler on. Notch2NL, this is a duplicate gene that duplicated just less than 3 million years ago in the human lineage. It's again expressed in these neuronal progenitor cells, but its role appears to actually delay neuronal progenitor differentiation. So neurons are ultimately produced, but when they're produced, there's a delay in their production, which is one of those hallmark features of the development of the human brain. So what's remarkable to me about these is that most of these are nearly fixed in the human population, even though they arose very, very recently. So every human in this room has two copies of the functional copy. Almost each one of these genes is incomplete with respect to the ancestral function. So if you think about a gene being so big, these are almost always truncated versions. In fact, their action depends upon essentially them not being complete. And the thing I don't have time to go into is that these same regions actually create instability in our genome that leads to us having children with autism, developmental delay, and epilepsy. So the liability, in part, for us having increased risk of these diseases is due to the emergence of these novel genes that confer, we think, function in terms of the human brain. The last one I'll mention, which I think is absolutely one of the most interesting, is that when we've looked at archaic genomes, that of Denisova and Neanderthal, the biggest difference that exists between us and Neanderthal and Denisova is a large duplication that has expanded specifically, not just in humans, but on the Homo sapiens lineage since divergence from these these other species 500,000 years ago. This duplicated segment is expanded in all of you it's not found in any of the sequ- sequences of Denisova and Neanderthal that we've looked at with Svante Pablo. It contains four genes. Those genes are important in terms of essentially neurotransmitter reuptake. They're genes important in terms of recombination. And interestingly, they genes important in terms of iron metabolism. So there's a gene in this particular region that seems to be associated with more stable iron recruitment. i speaking to the last... Speaker, This is, I think, quite interesting. Coming back to the disease angle, this duplication, which is Homo sapiens specific, contributes to the second leading cause, at least genetically, of autism in the human population. In other words, the placement of these duplicated sequences creates instability that doesn't exist or wouldn't exist in Denisova, Neanderthal, or chimpanzee. And this is the second most common cause of autism in the human population. What's the future and what's the problem? The problem is what I'm showing you here, is that our sequencing of genomes has been largely incomplete over the last 10 to 20 years. And the number, and the best way to look at that is to look at these different genomes that have been sequenced and look at the number of gaps that remain, or at least remained as of two years ago in each of these genomes. We've put far more money into the sequencing of the human genome for many good reasons, But really, it's like apples and oranges when you start comparing it to other organisms, other primates, and you want to actually discover the differences that make us uniquely different or unique. So new technology has emerged over the last uh, three or four years. In the sequencing world, we call it long reads. So instead of using short reads, we're now using reads that are 15, 20, 100,000 base pairs in length. And we can now sequence and assemble genomes at a scale that was really unparalleled. We can now sequence, and we show proof of principle of this when we sequenced the gorilla genome. It was an 800-fold improvement of the previous genome, which we had essentially 400,000 gaps, and now we have less than 1,000 gaps. So when we analyze those genomes, we can now discover structural differences that are actually specific to gorilla, specific to human as a result. So we've done, and I'm an advocate for this, sequencing great apes at a higher quality than what we've done before, not just one from each species. I think we need to do all subspecies, and we, need to, do all, we do need to do multiple representations. As you can imagine, the money for doing humans is already there. The money to actually do apes is not. But NIH, in a moment of weakness, actually gave us the money to do three or four, and so we've been able to complete that. And what I'm really excited by is that we're now assembling genomes of gorillas, chimps, and orangutans without guidance from the human reference. We're doing it from first principles, and this is revealing large amounts of genetic difference that exist that we previously didn't recognize. We're also sequencing the genes. Instead of boring them from the human genome, we actually now have the ability with the same technology to sequence entire genes from the species and from the tissues of those species that we're interested in. So the good news is that we can now build trees like this for more complex genetic variation. This is just showing you uh, insertions, deletions, and and inversions that are specific to the human lineage as a result of that sequencing. And as a result, we've actually doubled the number of regions of the genome that we think are functional in terms of regulation that actually have been lost on the human lineage since divergence. So we essentially doubled the number of candidate genes to study going forward. And we've also been combining this data with people like Rusty Gage and Frank Pillow, as well as uh, Alex Polan, to look at the areas where there's structural differences in genes and look at the, essentially the brains of humans, chimps. Well, we can't look at chimp brains per se. We can actually use something called cerebral organoids, which is a surrogate for the development of those brains, as well as macaque primary tissue, and look for the intersection between genes that have undergone structural change versus genes that now show specific differences in the expression of the human brain compared to the other apes. And I won't go through this diagram other than to say there's two important conclusions that we've made. When we look at the genes that are differentially expressed between a chimp-developing brain, as determined by cerebral organoids, versus a human, what we find is that genes that essentially are associated with deletions of regulatory sequences – tend to be the genes that we see more likely to be uh, uh, reduced in expression in the human brain. So this is the less is more hypothesis. And genes that are upregulated in the human brain tend to be associated with those genes that I showed you in that color map that have specifically duplicated on our lineage. So very non-random, new set of genetic variation that is largely coming from the ability to sequence genomes at a higher quality. So in summary, there's been a lot of progress, I would argue, over the last two decades in terms of identifying candidate genes, which is probably at least, and no, no geneticist would agree upon this, but on the order of 25, I think, good candidates that have functional data that are out there. Copy number changes between the genomes of the apes is, in fact, much more abundant than single base pair changes. That seems to be irrefutable at this point. This has accumulated in a non-random fashion over evolutionary time, with most over a third of that activity happening in a common ancestor leading to human chimps and gorillas. And I would argue that somewhere between a third to the half of the best candidates that are out there for the differences that make at least the human brain unique involve expression differences of genes that have undergone structural changes between humans and chimps including the emergence of entirely new genes on our lineage. And if you're a student in this area, it's a wonderful time to be alive because you can actually do what used to cost us, you know, a billion dollars to do for the first human genome in an individual lab, working on projects to identify the genetic differences that make us human. Thanks.